Bay, I think one of the most common questions that I hear from our listeners is, what do we use to study? Obviously, like we have the luxury of being able to sit here and do the podcast, but sometimes, I don't know about you, but I definitely need a little bit of help. Yeah, definitely. I mean, other than just going through the huge list of practice bulletins and committee opinions and all of that stuff, I actually really like using the OBG project, which you can find at www.obgproject.com, simply because they put all of this in nice, neat little categories and have really good summaries that you can access and get to all the time. And as a super special for chief residents, you can get access to their premium product, OBG First, for absolutely free. The details are on our website, but essentially what this is is your personalized library of OBG Project summaries, latest clinical studies, um, and it all comes to your phone too, easily, by email or text, whatever you prefer. We'll be including the link to sign up on our website, but all you have to do is put in your name, your email address, and your program just so that they can confirm that you are indeed a fourth-year resident. And then they'll send you a coupon and you can get OBG first free for one whole year. Head on over to www.creogsovercoffee.com and find out how you can get OBG first. Welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Over Coffee. Coffee. So today we will be talking about HIV. We've got a mega episode series plans for HIV, but today we're going to really talk about care in non-pregnant women. We'll spend another episode in the future talking about HIV and pregnancy. Um, But let's limit ourselves today because this is a huge topic, Faye. So let's go over learning objectives. So number one, what we'd like to do is talk about the screening of HIV in non-pregnant women, talk about how we screen and what to do for screening. We'll then talk about the changes in GYN care for these women uh, who have HIV. And finally, we will touch a little bit, not on antiretrovirals themselves, but a summary of antiretrovirals and how they affect different types of contraception. Sounds great. All right, Nick, so let's talk about screening. Yeah, screening. So think that a lot of us are very familiar with screening, again, for patients who are pregnant, right? Like we get an HIV in the first trimester and in the third trimester. Right. But the CDC and the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommend at least one-time screening in women aged 13 to 64 by the CDC recommendations or 15 to 65 by the USPSTF recommendations. Mm. The CDC does go a little bit further to recommend even annual screening in women with risk factors. And those risk factors include IV drug use or being the sex partner of somebody who engages in IV drug use exchanges sex for money or drugs, patients who are sex partners of an HIV-infected person, patients who have had sex with greater than one partner since their last screening, or not really pertaining to GYNs, but also important to know men who have sex with men should also be annually screened. Faye, why should we really be focusing on routinely screening women? 
So that's a great question, Nick. So from 2006 to 2009, there were 40 to 50,000 new cases of HIV in the U.S. annually, and almost 25% of existing cases are among women, and heterosexual contact is the most common form of HIV transmission. About 20% of HIV-infected patients are unaware of their status, and of course, because of new pharmacologic interventions that have recently come out, we know that early treatment can lead to a long, healthy life with HIV. Most women will receive their diagnosis during their reproductive years. Um, this is when OBGYNs will play the most crucial role in true primary care for these women. Absolutely. And ACOG subscribes to something called opt-out HIV testing, which is a philosophy that patients should really be notified that HIV screening is a routine part of their visit and the patient can choose to opt out rather than having the patient say they opt into testing. Mm. And if a patient decides to opt out, they should be reassured that their care is not going to be affected, though you should document this choice in the medical record and the patient's reasoning for avoiding HIV screening. It is also good to know that in all 50 states and Washington, D.C. now allow for adolescents to access sexually transmitted infection services without parental consent, though some states do allow for physicians to contact parents whose children request such services. All adolescents receiving HIV testing should be counseled about contraception and safe sexual practices. So, Nick, what is the screening test that we would perform? I think many of us are now aware of these rapid HIV tests, um, which have really great test characteristics. The specificity, depending on the type, ranges from 93 to 100%, and the sensitivity is 98.6 to 100%. Many of these can result in as soon as an hour after wow. testing. Recall from the statistics episodes that a high sensitivity is a good characteristic of a screening test. Positive results on these rapid tests should always be confirmed with additional testing. So what do we do after this positive screen then? Yeah, so it is important to remember that HIV is a reportable disease in almost all jurisdictions. So still good to go and check with what your state's health department regarding reporting requirements are. ACOG says that negative tests are acceptable to communicate via phone or other indirect systems like email or letters. But positive results should be communicated face-to-face -face between the patient and the provider who has skill to provide counseling and ability to answer questions about a positive HIV screening test. Remember that you should always be getting a confirmatory test after a positive screening test. And if the confirmatory test does come back positive, then antiretroviral treatment should begin as soon as possible with an expert in HIV as well as referrals to appropriate support services. So let's shift gears a little bit, Nick. So let's say you have a patient who comes to your practice and is and has HIV. What are the changes that we would do for this patient um, in their routine annual or preventative services that we may not do for people who don't have HIV? Absolutely. So from the gynecologist's perspective, probably the most important thing that we focus on and recognize um, during our visits are pap smear and HPV screen. Women who have HIV are still eligible for the HPV vaccination, so it's still important to offer them that. But for screening purposes, cytology-based screening should begin within one year of sexual activity in the HIV-infected patient and starting no later than age 21. So that's a big departure, and that really represents some of the kind of older wisdom about pap smears. Now, mm. We used to say that like start it within a year of sexual activity for everybody. That does apply to HIV patients, and it really, again, should not start later than age 21. Women younger than 30 should receive annual screening for three years. 
Once they've had three negative cytologies, screening can space out to every three years at that point. If women are older than age 30, there's one of two acceptable strategies. The first is the same as what we've already described. They can have annual screening for three years. Then every three years, if you're pursuing cytology-based screening alone, and if you're doing cytology plus HPV screening, then that screening should be done every three years as long as your first test is negative. Hmm. HPV-positive co-testing should be managed the same as in the general population. Hey, let's talk about some results. So let's start with um, ASCUS because that's one that kind of gets a lot of patients, especially younger patients. Yeah. What does ACOG say about that? So women who are over 21 with ASCUS should have HPV reflex testing performed if it's not initially done. And if they are HPV positive with an ASCUS pap, then colposcopy is recommended. If they don't have HPV or HPV negative, then they should be managed the same as the general population. Now, if HPV testing is not available, repeat cytology should be performed in 6 to 12 months. And if persistently this patient has ASCUS, then colposcopy should again be recommended. In women who are younger than 21, and remember this is a departure from our general practice of not performing PAPs in patients less than 21, a patient with HIV should not have HPV testing done. Rather, they should have repeat cytology in 6 to 12 months. All right, Nick, so we've kind of finished talking about pap smears. What? Let's kind of move on to some other sexually transmitted infections that patients can get um, and how we would manage them differently if they were HIV positive. Sure. So one that I can think of are genital warts or condyloma. Um, again, can be associated with HPV as well. So I think that's a good jumping off point from pap smears. Really, the guidance is that there's not much else to do other than the fact that condyloma may require longer treatment times or treatment intervals than in somebody who does not have HIV. However, you should maintain a high suspicion for vulvar dysplasia or vulvar cancer. So if these condyloma are persistent, just like in anybody else, biopsy should be considered. In terms of vaginitis, like BV and yeast, these can be more prevalent and can be more persistent in HIV-infected women. However, diagnosis and treatment don't really change. Trichomonas vaginitis can also have high incidence in HIV-infected women. Diagnosis is the same still, but treatment does change a little bit. ACOG actually recommends the one-week treatment course of metronidazole rather than the single-dose course that many of us are used to. And the reason for that is randomized trial data has demonstrated higher failure of treatments with single-dose regimens in HIV-affected patients versus the one-week dosing. Moving on to sexually transmitted infections like gonorrhea and chlamydia, these patients should be screened at entry to care and annually. The screening test is the same and diagnosis is the same. And after treatment, we know that there is a high incidence of reinfection, so we should test these patients three months post-treatment. For other types of sexually transmitted infections, namely syphilis, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C, these screens should also be performed at diagnosis of HIV or on entry to care for HIV-affected patients. We won't go into the nitty-gritty of treatment for these, but the short story for it is that treatment should be undertaken with cons in consultation with experts in this area. All right, Nick, let's talk a little bit about all those antiretrovirals. And I know we're not going to go into every single antiretroviral on this podcast yeah. because we are an OBGYN podcast and not an ID podcast. But what do I, as, a, as an OBGYN, need to know? Yeah, so I think kind of the 
thing as an OBGYN is trying to know which of these antiretrovirals mixes badly with contraception, um, if any of them do, as a quick preview. Again, just like with antibiotics, other medications, we worry about changes in the metabolism of either hormones or of the medications themselves. Generally speaking, talking with an HIV-affected patient, use of dual contraception, that means using a hormonal therapy as well as a barrier method, should be encouraged. Barrier contraception is the only method that can limit the risk of viral transmission, so it should be encouraged. Hey, what about birth control pills or combined hormonal methods? So in terms of combined hormonal contraceptive pills, the non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor, that's a mouthful, or the NNRTI called efavirenz, and certain protease inhibitors may decrease the efficacy of combined methods by reducing contraceptive hormone levels. However, Per ACOG, these methods are still considered safe for women affected by HIV and are considered U.S. MEC Category 2. The exception to this rule is fosamprenivir, as combined hormonal contraceptives also lead to decreased levels of this protease inhibitor. So this is Category 3. What about implants, Nick? Yeah, so the etonergestrel implant, or Nexplanon, is similar to combined hormonal contraception, in the sense that there are theoretical risk in decreased contraceptive effectiveness for patients who are on efavirenz. However, again, the overall recommendation is that the benefits of contraception with this method outweigh the risks of failure, and so this remains medical eligibility criteria category two across all antiretroviral users. Hey, how about Depo-Provera is another one? Yeah, Depo is actually category one for all users. But again, except for those people who are on fosamprenivir, risks are considered to be outweighed by the benefits of use. And there's limited evidence um, that Depo decreases fosamprenivir levels um, in the same way that con- combined hormonal contraceptive pills do. So therefore, it is considered MEC category two. And finally, what about IUDs? Yeah, so the IUDs actually are a really nice option because they're category one for all users. Studies have looked in particular about one question with IUDs, and that's if they increase the risk of PID or TOA in HIV-affected women. And the answer to that is no. So if you can do an IUD, that's actually probably the most optimal method. The added bonuses, again, just like with any other user of the IUD, is that the levonorgestrel IUD can reduce menstrual bleeding, um, which is a bonus side effect. And kind of moving on to our next topic, the copper IUD can be used as emergency contraceptives. We talked a little bit, Faye, about oral contraception and some problems with that in certain patients on like a favarens or fosamprenivir. What about the emergency contraceptive pills? What do we need to know about those for HIV patients? Yeah, so similar to combined hormonal contraceptive pills, there's a theoretical risk of decreased efficacy of the hormonal emergency contraceptive pills among women taking efavirenz. However, oral medications such as levonorgestrel and ulopristol should be offered to HIV-affected women as the benefits of emergency contraception are considered to outweigh the risks. All right, Nick, so I know we have a whole episode that's going to be dedicated towards pregnancy and HIV, but let's talk a little bit about those women who are considering pregnancy. So what should we as OBGYNs know about HIV-affected patients who want to become pregnant? Absolutely. Just like any other patient who comes to your office, your patient may be interested in contraception or they may be interested in pregnancy when they're young and of reproductive age. So 
For HIV-affected women, they need to be counseled first and foremost that in considering pregnancy, they need to be on effective antiretroviral therapy. And the goal with that is to have a negative viral load at the time of conception. Preconception counseling should be similar otherwise, or in many ways, to that of other patients. Though specifically, we want to focus on risk-reducing um, with HIV-affected patients. So that's, in, again, focusing especially on reducing tobacco, alcohol, or substance abuse, um, limiting risky sexual behaviors, and ensuring effective STI screening and, if necessary, treatment for both partners. They what would you tell HIV-affected patients about kind of the particulars of like antiretroviral effects? Yeah, so we should definitely be focusing on antiretroviral effects during preconception counseling. We should talk about the effects on the fetus and, of course, of limiting um, the risk of vertical transmission. So efavirenz-containing regimens should be avoided, if possible, due to high risk of neurotube defects. Extra folate supplementation should be considered for all patients. At the same time, we should also discuss that there are recommendations for avoiding breastfeeding in developed countries and also discussing the use of prophylactic medications for the infant. So Nick, what about becoming pregnant? I mean, we if you have a patient that is HIV positive and then you have a partner who may or may not be HIV positive, let's say they're HIV negative, there is a risk of transmission if they were to have sexual intercourse. So what is the safest way for someone who is HIV positive to become pregnant? Absolutely. And this can go both ways, right? Like you can have a HIV negative woman with her HIV positive partner come in and say, how do we get pregnant? Certainly the safest way to achieve pregnancy is through artificial insemination, whether that's for the woman um, to limit exposure to her non-affected partner or for there are ways actually in which semen can be treated so that way the HIV unaffected woman can still achieve pregnancy with her HIV affected partner. However, there are certainly things that, or there are certainly factors that may limit the desirability of artificial insemination. And one of those is just the psychological factor of just achieving pregnancy naturally. If patients strongly desire that, OBGYNs really need to discuss limiting unprotected intercourse to only ovulatory times using things like ovulation predictor kits. Um, and then for the unaffected partner, they should be using pre-exposure prophylaxis. This generally involves a daily regimen of a drug that's a combination of tenofovir and emtricitabine, which is by a trade name known as Truvada. And this should be used for a month prior to and one month after conception. The risk reduction using pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP for short, is estimated to be somewhere between 63 to 75%, and the best available data suggests that this is likely safe with respect to pregnancy. Again, I think, Faye, that's probably as far as we should go for now, and we'll focus on kind of the effects of HIV medications in pregnancy and special considerations for pregnancy for a future episode. All right, Nick, so let's go ahead and sum up everything that we just talked about. Fantastic. So we started off talking about screening and why we should screen women. Again, there's 40 to 50,000 new cases of HIV annually. Thus, the CDC and U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommend one-time screening in most women and even annual screening in women with risk factors for acquiring HIV. 
We also talked about exactly what the screening test is. So now we have rapid HIV tests that have high sensitivity for HIV. Um, and people who have a positive screening test should then get a confirmatory test to confirm that they have or don't have HIV. Once this happens, they should be seen in a face-to-face -face consultation with an expert on HIV or their healthcare provider and be started on antiretroviral treatments. We then talked about the OBGYN and GYN care for the HIV-affected patient. Um, and primarily, the big thing that changes are pap smear recommendations. Again, cytology-based screening should begin within one year of sexual activity in the HIV-affected patient, starting no later than age 21. That means for this population, you may consider starting pap smears before age 21, which is a departure from most of our thought processes. Women younger than 30 should have three negative tests annually before proceeding to Q3 year screening. And then women older than 30 should have the same thing if screening by cytology alone, or if you're doing HPV co-testing, you need one negative test before proceeding to Q3 year screening. We also talked about other sexually transmitted infections or vaginitis in patients who have HIV. Largely, these should be treated and diagnosed the same way as in someone who does not have HIV. However, patients should be screened for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and additional sexually transmitted infections like syphilis and hepatitis B and hepatitis C upon diagnosis of HIV. For contraception, we talked, generally speaking, that dual contraception using a barrier and a hormonal method should be encouraged. U.S. medical eligibility criteria category 1 methods include IUDs and Depo-Provera for most people except for those using the protease inhibitor Fosamprenovir. All other methods tend to be category 2 with the exception of combined hormonal contraception, again because of the risk of CHCs reducing the efficacy of Fosamprenovir. In terms of counseling patients who have HIV or who have partners that are HIV affected in terms of becoming pregnant, we should focus on things like preconception counseling in terms of decreasing their viral load to zero with effective antiretroviral therapy. We also talked about preconception counseling being much the same as anyone who would be considering getting pregnant, but also focusing on risk reduction in terms of tobacco, alcohol, substance use, and also STI screening for both patients and the partner. Similarly, we talked a little bit about preconception counseling in particular for HIV, talking about antiretroviral effects and things to think about after the baby is born, including in developed countries avoiding breastfeeding, as well as being accustomed to the sense that the baby will need to be on antiretroviral therapy for a short period of time after birth. The safest way, again, to achieve pregnancy is through artificial insemination, for those who do not desire artificial insemination, timed intercourse and use of pre-exposure prophylaxis should be encouraged. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our episode. So once again, I'm Faye. And I'm Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you liked what you heard today, give us a five-star rating on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher may be. 
You can also find us online on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, and on our website at www.CreogsOverCoffee.com. If you are so inclined, you can sponsor us on our Patreon at www.Patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. You can get a cool shout out on the show, access to special content, or even cool swag. Think we missed something important on this episode, have a correction to offer us, or you want to hear something else and have a topic idea? Email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.